Hey, it's Brad Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast, and welcome back to the November Friday Takeover, Week 5. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves, in and out of the exam room. This week, we cover ethically utilizing the power of placebo. Let's start the show. Dr. Luana Coloca is a physician scientist, professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, director of the TL1 program, chair of the Pain and Placebo Special Interest Group for the International Association for Study of Pain Society, and steering member and treasurer for the Society for Interdisciplinary Studies of Placebo. Professor Coloco holds an MD, a PhD in neuroscience, and a master's in bioethics. She completed a postdoc training at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, and a senior research fellowship at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Professor Coloco received several prestigious awards, such as the IASP Wall Patrick Award for Basic Science Research on Pain Mechanisms. Professor Coloca leads an NIH-funded research portfolio on endogenous pain modulation, including placebo-nocebo effects and other non-pharmacological interventions, such as virtual reality, at the School of Nursing at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. So we talk about the placebo effect and its evil twin, the nocebo effect, and the dicey ethical territory that comes with recommending an intervention that you know only works if the placebo effect occurs. We also discuss the ethical dilemma of the nocebo effect, which is when we prime patients to feel more pain by warning them about impending pain and what we can do to minimize that. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today we'll be reading Docs in Shocks. Some docs are overworked as work works overworked workers weary. Some docs are overstocked, stopped as pandemic TikToks keep docs off clocks. If docs are in shock as the pandemic clock tick-tocks, then locums is the token to unburn the burnt-out broken. So how many clock tick-tocks must talk until docs tick-box and swaps to the spoken locum tenens token to unburn the burnt-out broken? Enough ticks have talked. Time is now, and locums is how. Locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend mend to burnt-out ends. For more locum tenens information, Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory is your final destination. The reason that we're having today's guest on the podcast is because I had a very specific clinical question, more of an ethical dilemma that I was facing in my practice regularly. So as the listeners know, I'm an otolaryngologist and I see a lot of patients with tinnitus or tinnitus. Both pronunciations are actually correct. And we don't really have a medication that we can prescribe for it. Nothing seems to work. So some people would prescribe or recommend lipoflavonoids or other vitamins for, quote, ear health. And I would tell my patients, I'm sorry, there's nothing out there. Now I'd counsel them on other things, managing anxiety, TMJ, limiting NSAIDs and caffeine. But my wife 
who's not a physician, and my sister-in-law, who's an internist, would both tell me, but if you've got nothing to offer them, why not recommend the lipoflavonoids? Why not tell them or don't even tell them, oh, it doesn't work. Just let them try it and discover it for themselves. But then the other question is, do I recommend it? So this is an ethical dilemma. Do I give them the information that I have so that they can make their own decision? Or do I withhold some of this information from them in order to deceive them? Because the placebo effect is pretty strong, especially for something like tinnitus. So do I? What's the right thing to do? I don't know. I can help them, or at least a good number of them, by misleading them. Is that right? So that's the reason I reached out to today's guests. Dr. Luana Coloca, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Bradley, thank you for having me. That is a great question to start with. There are many situations in medicine where we don't have treatment or an intervention that works. And the reason why in the history of medicine, we use a different placebo or treatment that may work by virtue of placebo effects is exactly for the same conundrum that you are facing. So first we have a condition for which we don't have an active treatment that may help release the pain, the discomfort, the distress. At the same time, we know that internally we have a stronger, I would say, pharmacy that allow in our brain to release endogenous substances that can create benefits. This example that you nicely share with us is very common in medicine. Not that we don't have a treatment that works, on the contrary, but there are many situations where we can invoke and trigger endogenous release of substances to help healing processes. This kind of responses are well known among physicians, among clinicians, and for us, placebologists, people who study the healing process, are a very fascinating area of research where we want to understand more why eventually patients may feel better. And let's start with the neurobiology about improvements that we can't explain with the mere administration of placebos. And then we will face the, the ethical dilemma. How can we provide this kind of treatment? How to inform a patient about placebo effects or inert treatments? So before we get there, can you just give us a little bit of your journey to becoming a placebologist? I don't know if this term will actually exist, but I do love it because somehow, you know, describe very much what we do. My training is in medicine. I start as a physician. I practice for about one year and I realized that I really like to study. And my dream was to do a job where I would have studied almost all my life. And the goal was to continue to be in medicine and provide these resources to help advance science. The area of our body that to me was more fascinating is behaviors and our brain can manage different behaviors and healing processes. So I start after my MD and after practicing for about one year, a PhD in neurophysiology. The idea was to understand that our brain works. And one area that I target, mostly for serendipity, I mean, uh, when I passed my selection for the PhD program at the University of Turin in Italy, there were only a few faculty who were doing the human research. And I started with my former mentor, 
and he asked me, you know, if I had an interest in placebo, and I say, no, I'm not a psychologist. I wish to do research that can be applied to uh, medicine. So I start projects in the interoperative room where I truly was immersed in exploring the response at the level of neurons to try to understand if really there is a placebo that affects the neuronal activity. So we were studying um, deep brain stimulation. That is a technique that we use for uh, Parkinsonian patients who do not respond to pharmacological treatments. In this context, we administer uh, a sham apomorphin to relieve some of the patient symptoms, but also as scientists, the goal was to understand if eventually a sham apomorphin selling solution would work at the level of the brain activity, we would detect change from the subthalamic region. And it was an epiphany when we start, I start detecting together with the entire team of neurologists, neurophysiologists, neurosurgeons, the different spike sound of the neurons when patients were receiving placebo. So there were three different effects. There was a reduction of uh, the spike of the neurons. There was an improvement that was detected in a blind manner by a neurologist. And also patients were telling us, I feel better. I feel like the day before the surgery when eventually we were giving apomorphine. So for me to see these effects at three levels, clinical speaking as providers, but also from a neurophysiological point of view, literally the spike of neurons changing in front of us. And finally, the patient, patient perception that is so important, as you told us with your patients, you know, combining these three responses was really a turning point for me. I decided that I wanted to study placebo, uh, placebo mechanisms, and I have been studying placebo since then with the goal to translate this into clinical practice, into medicine. And that is why eventually I continue my career with two degrees in bioethics, because as you mentioned, working with placebo can raise many ethical questions. So what you're saying is it wasn't just the subjective experience of the patient, but there was an objective measure there. There was the upregulation of the apomorphine, somehow the pa like endogenous instead of exogenous from the placebo effect. So it wasn't subjective, but there was an objective measure. Absolutely. Uh, we observe um, a change uh, in the spike of the neurons and the bursting activity that is another future of the neuronal uh, discharge activity changed. And that was something that uh, patients didn't know. And we were just detecting by recording single neurons in the brain. So this is an objective measurement that is a neurophysiological response. But also uh, it was uh, relevant for us to corroborate that this change in the brain was paired with uh, the self-report of our patient, I feel better, the response that clinically was detected by our colleagues, neurologists that eventually enter into the room, surgical room to detect the change. So how do you study something like that? This was sort of an unusual setting. I mean, we continue to study placebo with brain imaging, with genetics, with pharmacological approach. But in this particular case, the deep brain stimulation required the implantation of electrodes in the brain. The electrodes in the brain 
are meant to stimulate the subthalamic nucleus or region, we can say, and improve the three main symptoms of Parkinson. In order to implant the electrodes in the brain, we need to record the neuronal activities to make sure that we target the right part of the brain. And it's fascinating as a neurophysiologist to go into the brain with very small needle. It is an electrode, but it's as small as a needle and record all the neurons from the basal ganglia and in particular the subthalamic region. And while we record these neuronal activities before and after an injection of a placebo, we can document how the neurons change their spikes and their activities based on baseline control condition and then after the injection of a placebo subcutaneously. So this allows us to document, uh, you know, and record many cells and neurons and eventually understanding that when patients expect to improve and receive a treatment that somehow they had the experience day before the surgical procedure, actual apomorphin, then replacing the active apomorphin with water cell in solution produced still a change in the brain that mimic the action of apomorphin. So um, there is a sort of pharmacological memory having the experience of apomorphin before the injection of saline solution can produce a pharmacological memory. And this pharmacological memory is reflected in the activity of the neurons that change their spike as if we had to use apomorphin. And we would have also add that this kind of response indicates that in the brain it's likely that we release endogenous dopamine. When you're doing this, not this specific study, but placebo research in general, right? Because ultimately, when we're doing other studies, the placebo is the control. How do you tell the difference between, say, placebo and just regression to the mean, right? Because exactly. often there's a tendency to heal. How are you differentiating one from the other? This is very critical and a very elegant question. In order to detect placebo effects, we need what we call the no treatment harm, a condition where we merely record the neurons in the brain, or we record the pain in patient, or we record a, a, another symptom that can be fatigue or uh, anxiety or depression. So when we detect changes between the no intervention slash treatment arm and the placebo arm, we can say this is a placebo effect. Otherwise, you're right, it can be merely regression to the mean, biases related to, you know, confounding factors. So, autorne effects merely beginning a clinical trial. Unless we have what we call natural history, no treatment harm, we can't say that response is a placebo effect. Got it. So it's it's like if the patient has a, then you need three arms, right? There's the study arm, the placebo arm, and then just no arm. Like the patients you just follow without any intervention, be it some get a sham intervention, some get nothing. That group of natural history allow us to see fluctuation that occur as a matter of regression to the mean uh, and other confounding factors. 
or spontaneous improvement and remission. What symptoms tend to be the most susceptible to the placebo effect? And in contrast, which are the least? Is there a pattern? Absolutely. Symptoms that we have a conscious perception. I mentioned Parkinsonian symptoms, rigidity, tremor, bradycanesia. We mentioned pain. And we mentioned anxiety, fatigue. All these symptoms that somehow we have experience of can be highly modulated by placebo effects. On the contrary, body responses and symptoms that are not consciously perceived, for example, an increase in cortisol, an increase in the count of white cells in the blood, an increase in tumoral cells, that unless you know there is a related to that worsening of, we don't really perceive that change. And this kind of, um, let's say, body responses are less susceptible to be modulated by placebo effects, if not at all. I mean, uh, if I eventually inform a participant now, your level of NGF will change, nerve growth factor. We don't know what a nerve growth outer change means. I mean, eventually we can detect in the body, but we don't know in terms of experience. So any symptom that we can we can convey, we can have an experience, are highly modulated by placebo effects. Yet there is a way to study placebo effects in animals and in symptoms or body responses. Symptoms per se as this sense of perception. Let's call that body responses. Body responses that are not consciously perceived can be modulated by pharmacological conditioning, for example. When we study uh, placebo effects in rodents, in animal models, we use drugs where we expose the animal to a drug that could be, for example, an analgesic drug several times, and then we replace the analgesic drug with a placebo. This would allow us still to study condition and the placebo effects. But there are situations, and this is cancer, very degenerative disorders that do not heal through placebo effects. We can have an improvement of fatigue, we can have an improvement of pain, improvement of other symptoms, but non healing process of the disease that generate the symptom. And that is why we needed to be very cautious when we talk about placebo effects. Placebos are not the solution to solve many diseases. Degenerative disease. We can talk about the disease behind the Parkinson's symptoms. Even if a patient can feel less tremor, less rigidity, we can't treat Parkinson with placebos. We can't treat cancer with placebos. So placebos are not to treat people but to make people feel better. Well, we were talking about this before the show. Also, there's some degree of science for the sake of science, right? Like with pursuing this path of research, who knows what you'll uncover that could be applied. Like there, there seems to be just a better understanding of the complexities of the human brain. And the peripheral nervous system. Yes, we do need to learn more about pharmacological conditioning, for example. Um, one line of research that I really like uh, is um, try to use conditioning to reduce 
intake of active drugs. And one example that I tend to do, because I think it's very relevant, try to taper opioids by using pharmacological conditioning. So the same way, you know, I describe apomorphine that if Parkinson patient receive apomorphine several times and then we replace apomorphine with uh, the same subcutaneous injection but containing saline solution. The same we can use opioids, the same identical tablets, the same color, the same smell. If we use opioids several times to re reduce chronic pain or post-operative acute pain, at some point we can replace the active opioids with a reduced dose of opioids or no opioids at all. So, for example, sham opioids. And this will allow us to create a sort of a taper paradigm where we reduce the total intake of drugs besides effects related to drugs while we maintain a good management of pain. And we know that several uh, medications that we need to use in medicine have very important side effects. So if we can manage to optimize the treatment and reduce the side effects, that can be a plus, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Do you think there's any evolutionary reason behind the placebo effect? Why something like that could have evolved? Or do you think it's just a happy, serendipitous condition? Just before this call, uh, I was on, a, on another Zoom with um, a collaborator of mine, and we were looking at some uh, recent results. We are finalizing a paper, and we describe as placebo effects as an adaptive response, because from an evolutionary point of view, we activate this mechanism of healing and this inner pharmacy to prevent us from extinguish or from uh, situations that can somehow jeopardize the ability to heal. And uh, definitely uh, placebo effects are meant to optimize the healing process. And this is an important adaptive evolutionary phenomenon. What we still uh, don't know, or probably that is also part of the evolutionary perspective, why some people are so very good placebo responders and some other people respond so so and some other do not respond at all and eventually that can be also another great perspective in medicine because if we have a pool of patients who can manage their symptoms with much less treatment why do we need to prescribe the same dose the same amount of the cocktail of drugs to everyone when we can target the therapeutic plan to the needs of each single patient. So eventually, a patient who responds very well to placebo may benefit from subtherapeutic dose of active drugs, or even not active drugs at all. And some other patient may need a different kind of pharmacological treatment to trigger. And also we are improving this area of research in terms of brain knowledge applied to therapeutic approach, because we know that some drugs can somehow favor the release of endogenous substance in the brain, and we can somehow help to create placebo effects. Until a few years ago, this may sound like a paradox, but it's not. There are treatments across different you know, brain neuropeptides that can be prescribed to restore an impaired 
systems and provide again this ability to modulate in a positive way symptoms and favor improvements. So I think once we really discover more about the neurobiology of placebo effects, we can be really talk about precision medicine, this word that we like, or individualized medicine, where Luana gets her treatment, Bradley gets his treatment, and eventually if we both are great placebo responders, we may end up receiving less prescription than many other people. Or one day, eventually, it's possible also to help those people who are placebo non-responders to restore systems that have been impaired because of uh, a series of uh, genetic nature and nurture environmental factors that have created these conditions that somehow factor risks for uh, ability to engage with endogenous modulatory systems. Yeah, sometimes I tell my patients when they're asking about how long they're taking a medication, like if we're treating their sinus infection, right? Give them 10 days of antibiotics. Why 10 days? It's not tailored necessarily to the severity. I mean, sometimes it is, sometimes I'll put them on longer course, but often it's 10 days because we have 10 fingers. And so we use, we, we work in base 10, it's 10 days or a week. Oh, use this eardrop for a week. Why is it a week? Why? Cause a week is a round number. Use it for a week, right? So we are not tailoring things again, often we are, but sometimes we're not. It's just every, you know, like I could prescribe the same antibiotic for 105 pound woman and for a 350 pound man and it's the same dose and kids we can change the dose based on their weight but in adults so yeah we're talking about a whole new level of tailoring to their predisposition based on what you're referring to so let's talk about that initial question right so i i want to get to the nocebo so we definitely need to cover the nocebo effect so we'll talk about that in a minute but before we get there i want to i want you to answer that ethical dilemma of what do I do with my patients? They say, there's two situations, right? Is there anything out there? In which case then I'm recommending something that I know uses the placebo effect versus they're asking me, should I try X? And I just say, it works for some people. And then I'm not deceiving them. I'm just intentionally withholding some information. So what's the right thing to do? So it works for some people is framing that we have been using successfully for a long time. The new nuance is to tell people we have a very innate inner pharmacy. And if I give to you something, you may benefit because you start responding to placebo effects. And then let's say I give you a pill, something. We don't have a way to trigger these responses. We know that merely taking something that vitamin, a candy, an active drug can help trigger responses in the body. Probably this is because of condition of the responses. Very much similar to Pavlovian dogs, we as human beings can respond to a treatment and our brain doesn't recognize if you are taking an active treatment or not. So you can uh, decide with the patient, starting with the general story, many patients improve. We don't know why. One explanation is because we trigger placebo effects. 
Did you ever hear about placebo effect? Wait a second. <laughs> Aren't I removing some of the efficacy of the placebo effect by disclosing that we're using the placebo effect? Because then if they're not a believer, they're probably not even going to try it. We were even afraid to ask how much do you expect to improve because we thought that patients uh, can't be informed about the true nature of the treatment. In the majority of the case, at least in our experience with our patient, if we tell them how much stronger, and if you have also a video clip show the release of substance in the brain and explain to them, probably this would not be applicable to all your patient, but many of them may be intrigued and fascinated by learning about placebo effects. And we will love to explain that placebo effects are formed to conditioning responses. And unless we take something, we do not have any way to trigger this response in the brain. And also we can candidly explain that we are still in the process of learning the mechanisms but definitely many patients improve. And we hope that they are among that patient. Are you willing to try? So you can somehow negotiate with your patient. And eventually by talking, you understand to what extent they look at you like person that, you know, you can continue to explain the neurobiological uh, part of this phenomenon, or, or rather say many patients improve. And if you like, we can try. Okay, so the ethical thing to do is to disclose that we are using the placebo effect, but then I didn't, I'm not sure about that answer. Does it blunt the effectiveness of the placebo effect if you're disclosing that they're using the placebo effect? We disclose with our patient, many of them react like, I wish someone else would have told me this earlier on. I didn't imagine that. I have the power to control my body. So many of them feel empowered by this knowledge and they start to react and take, you know, their own, you know, resources much more seriously than uh, relying on a prescription. All right. I hope you can try it and then you will tell me the results of your, uh, you know, and we can even design a study and uh, control this in a pragmatic trial. There's definitely a good amount of regression to the mean with tinnitus. That is something that I can give, that gives my patients some hope, actually. But let's talk about nocebo then. So my understanding of nocebo, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when you're priming a patient, you're telling them this is going to hurt or something along those lines. And when you do, it makes it hurt more than it otherwise would have. So you're basically sensitizing them. Their hairs are up to prepare for imminent discomfort. First, uh, let's define what uh, a nocebo is for our uh, audience. So the word nocebo comes from Latin no nocere. So it's the uh, opposite term of placebo, placere, I should please. And nocere is the negative version, so I should harm. So when this word was created in 1961, Kennedy wants to really contrast the negative placebo effects, something that can create worsening of symptoms. In medicine, we use many times transparent, honest information that alert our bodies to react and start defensive response can be 
perception of uh, higher pain that the pain we eventually are facing. And again, we mentioned here the ethical requirement to tell the truth and all the truth to our patient. So in this efforts to be ethical and pursue from a legal point of view, a transparent information for our patient, often we provide informations that harm patient. So and this is really an ethical conundrum. For example, when we talk about procedures that are painful, now you're going to feel a big pain. Already this can create per se a sort of fear reactions and a pain that may be an eight out of 10 become 10 out of 10 because we prone people to feel, you know, the fear of a pain. Let me actually, if I could interject, I would just want to give some examples from my own profession. So one of the things that I do is tonsillectomy. And this is hands down the most painful surgery that I do. It's the only thing that I regularly prescribe opioids for. Everything else I'm mostly, if not totally, using NSAIDs. And inevitably, if you don't coach the patient on these expectations enough, they'll think that something's gone terribly wrong. They're going to say, they're going to call you up and say, no, you don't understand. This pain is awful. Something's wrong. And so you need to really give them some reasonable expectations. So that's one situation. So I need to coach them. Let me stop you. Yep. You definitely need to tell them, but you can balance this information with an expectation of improvement. This is one of the worst pain you may experience, but we are here to control this pain together. You can create this therapeutic alliance. You can create, there are treatments that we can escalate. We can start with NSAIDs and eventually doesn't help. We keep increasing. We will use ice therapy. You will lead things that somehow create this sort of pain release through, you know, cold. And you say, I'm honest with you. This is a really painful intervention and procedure, but you have to know that we have the ability to control this pain to some extent. Don't, well, there's don't that. imagine to some extent, when I say control yeah. your pain, you won't be pain don't free. expect yeah. to be pain free because that is something that we can't achieve. If you, you tell them that we are not zeroing out the pain, they don't have to expect that their pain will vanish, but rather that, okay, we are here. This pain will last no more than two days. So kind of like when I'm taking my kids to get their vaccines, we'll go, we're going to go to the doctor, you're going to get a shot, and then we're going to go for ice cream. So you focus not on, you disclose, you're not trying to deceive them, but at the same time, you want to kind of change where the focus is. Like, yes, there's going to be a lot of pain, but we can help you control it, but it's going to get better. But a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Yes, don't live. Yes, don't leave a patient only with the negative expectation or the ne negative anticipation of their pain and their distress. And I would decide, but we will go to have uh, ice cream also if you add something during the injection, you know. Okay, distraction also during uh, the vaccination set and make the procedure less somehow distressful for kids, but also for others. I mean, yeah. uh, we continue to be kids even when it comes to pain, right? When I was a medical student, I still remember 
I even remember the, the lecture. I wonder if he's still there. Chuck Severin at SUNY Buffalo. He would say, you know, when you're telling your patients that something's going to hurt, you say, use the word pressure, don't use the word pain. And that didn't sit well with me because this was sometimes pain. Sometimes it is pressure, but sometimes it, it is pain. And I, I think if you're going to deceive your patients like that and you're not giving a realistic expectation, then you're going to lose their trust, which is then you've lost the relationship, right? Trust is critical to the doctor-patient relationship. So trust you. You can still say that uh, for some people, this sensation is very painful. For some other people, it's a matter of pressure. I don't know which is your perception, yeah. your sensitivity, but I can tell you for some people that this is the most terrible pain that I'd ever perceived, that I'd ever experienced. For some people, it's like walking on the water. They don't even feel pain. So... You can tell, I don't know how much pain you are going to feel or no pain at all or a sensation of discomfort for some, but we are here. Yeah. No matter what you feel, we will manage it together. I like that. I like that. Don't expect to be pain. This is going to be awful. Here we go. <laughs> exactly. But try to make some humor to be there. Absolutely do not lie. I mean, you can't say you will be fine what that means you will be fine you'll be in pain or you we don't know which kind of patient are you if for you it will be a painful procedure or just a discomfort excellent excellent i, I got all i've got all the answers i was looking for dr Coloca. thank you so much i have a comment you say that for tonsillectomy you prescribe uh, opioids yes because it's awful I was trained as a physician in Italy where they still don't prescribe opioids after tonsillectomy. I was trained under, uh, you know. Not in kids, actually, not in kids. Exactly, not in kids. Because the pain is different to green. Kids just get NSAIDs. Exactly, in kids and NSAIDs. Adults is another story, but in kids and. No, that's, that might even be a recommendation from our academy that you don't use opioids in kids anymore. So, no, definitely not. So, if people want to look, into your research more, into placebo and nocebo, where can they find it and where can they find you? They can Google my name, Luana Colocta. We have a website and we are on the social media, Twitter, and we try to communicate the results of our science. And we work on placebo effects apply to human begin to try to understand better how we can improve pain management and other symptoms. Fantastic. Well, thank you for the great work that you do and for taking the time to be with us today on the podcast. Thank you very much. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory for unbiased information about locum tenens and see if it should be your next chapter. And remember, locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend mend to burnt out ends. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.